Welcome to the Mental Health Boot Camp Podcast. Me. <laughs> this is the podcast where four psychotherapists, three of us Canadian, one of us American, serve you cutting edge mental health knowledge. I am Dr. Ryan Howes, a psychologist from Pasadena, California. And I am Brooke Lewis, a registered clinical counselor from the Vancouver, Canada area. And I'm Joanna Boyd, also a registered clinical counselor from the Vancouver area. And I'm Chris Boyd, psychotherapist for the Vancouver area and Joanna's brother. Right on. We nailed it this week. (laughs) We don't always nail it, but we nailed it this week. It's true. We've kept the same order for a long time. Maybe it's time to switch it up. Yeah. That's a good idea. Next time. Tune in next time for a switch up of our introduction. Yeah, it's a lot of pressure being the first Canadian. You really switch it up each time in terms of like what you say, where do we live? I'm like, where are we going to live this time? So I get thrown off. I get like a little spooked and then something just comes out. Are we talking stage fright tonight? Maybe performance anxiety? That's a a good topic for us, right? There's so so much pressure putting on this every way. I don't know. I feel so anxious before we do this every time. Sure. Well, I guess we'll find out in a little bit, in a smidgen. I'm just kidding. I don't really feel that anxious. This is just fun. Four friends talking mental health. That's what we do. This is episode 42. Wow. It's a lot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what day was our first episode? Like, so obviously I could count this out. Uh, well, it was in the summer. I will, I can tell you in a second here, that was July 19th. Okay, there we go. Because, yeah, the first episode, um, Chris and I were actually sitting outside on- on Me too. Euros, yeah, that's right. And there was like the plane and stuff, but it was bright enough that we could sit outside for the whole episode. So that's uh, happening soon. Oh, maybe I wasn't, maybe I was in my own place, but yeah, the anniversary is coming up. That's right. Stay tuned for our big anniversary plans on July 19th. Oh, that's right. Yeah, Joanna, I think it was when you were up here on the deck as well. Yeah, I think that was the second or third. But Yeah, it was either. Anyways, yeah, that was that was when we were contemplating whether or not to even do it. And we were, Ryan, you were the kind of, let's try it out. And we had to do a practice run with the recording ourselves because we were all thrown off. Everyone just stopped talking. We're like, hello. <laughs> <laughs> Now we are wise uh, veterans at this, doing it for a long time, and gosh, we're just hitting our stride. We're just getting started. There's so many topics to cover. Yeah. So many things to discuss in mental health. That's true. Um, We'll be doing our vote for your favorite mental health boot camp episode coming up here pretty soon. The content, the sweepstakes. We should do it at the one year. We'll do it at the one year, sure. Or leading up to the one year so we can announce it at the one year. Yeah, there we go. Yes, we'll do that. That's good. We'll okay. have to bake a cake. We'll have to bake a cake. We'll have to have more costumes. I think party cost- favors. Oh, costumes. Yes. When we have when we have, when we dress up a little bit, that's what gets people to watch the YouTube channel, you know? Oh. Uh, like okay. our Halloweens and our holidays and all those things. Those were kind of fun. I should start actually planning some outfits then. Typically by Thursday night, I'm just, mm, I'm just not there. It's the case of the Thursday. So there's uh, downgrading in the attire opposed to upgrading in the attire. Aha. Uh-huh. So we'd get a swankier brook on Monday morning? Or Tuesday afternoon, maybe. Monday morning might look a little bit rough too. <laughs> <laughs> Understandable. Hitting your stride on Tuesday afternoon. Yeah, exactly. It's about right. Yeah. Well, I happen to really like Thursday nights because it's like, okay, just about done with the week. Almost there. Uh, feels kind of kind of good. Feels like you're kind of on the down slope here and ready to slide into the weekend. Yeah. yeah. The weekend warm-up. Yes. It is kind of weekend yeah. warm-up. Yeah. Okay. Well, we've bantered. Let us, let's just dive right in, everybody. Let's get to our big topic of the evening. Let's do it. Okay. Who's, who's so serving I think it up I'm, tonight? I think I'm up. 
So I'm going to text you. Okay, this is the ambush. Chris knows the topic. The three of us, the rest of us do not. So here it comes, hopefully. Uh, okay, here it comes. Chris can follow up from toxic masculinity. Let's see. Okay, here we go. <laughs> All right, here we go. Ooh. Did he redeem himself? This is, this is, <laughs> okay. Ooh. If you're needing like, a, a pick me up on Thursday night, here we go. All right, everybody. How do you support a family member or friend who is feeling suicidal? Mm. Or how do you respond to these suicidal feelings and thoughts if you are experiencing them yourself? Really? That's what we're doing? That's what we're doing. Really, really. Remember, we were just talking about like how there's so much daylight and the flowers are blooming. Well, but there, but that's okay. Let's put on your clinician hat here, Brooke. We got, we got a little bit of work to do here. This is a a very important topic. Very, very timely and important topic. Look at this, David. David's here. We have. We have a guest. Good oh, evening. Hi. Hey. <laughs> this oh. is uh, David Linskoog. He is a uh, therapist and also in the Vancouver area. And uh, guess what? He, uh, this is kind of one of his area, areas of specialty. So he actually oversees a curriculum and facilitation of the suicide prevention education programming at the Health and Counseling Services at Simon Fraser University. That was a mouthful. <laughs> uh, this is uh, kind of his domain. Wow. <laughs> this is a true ambush, David. I, I've never met you. My name is Ryan. It's great to meet hey. you. Yeah, no, it's wonderful to be here. Uh, thank you, Chris, for the invitation. That That's, uh, you know, obviously an important topic, but this is just such a fun, uh, fun opportunity to chat with you all. Oh, this is so good. This is fantastic. You've already made my night. This is great. Yeah, so David uh, listened to all 44 podcasts before coming on tonight. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, no, I, uh, and and the last one, I think I even, I think you even name dropped me last, last episode, Chris. You you really actually listened to them all. (laughs) (laughs) You listened to a few of them. maybe, you know, last week's. Maybe just, okay. Well, still, thanks for listening. Thanks for the support. I'm a I'm a forever listener now. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, I on. listened right. to last week for sure, and I think you listened yeah. to Joe Dillies, yeah. and then uh, he was really excited to listen to Toxic Masculinity. <laughs> That's actually on the top of my list. Yeah, uh, I haven't got to it oh, yet, but do it, do it. <laughs> <laughs> I hear the, I hear I hear you're all really proud of it. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, no. So Ryan to uh, connect the dots. David's the one that um, Dungeons and Dragons, but with emotions. Oh yeah, that's David's right. Program. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. amazing. So if you if you ever decide to talk about therapeutically applied role playing games, then um, well, there there are lots of people. There is actually lots of people that uh, that you can yeah. talk to, but I would definitely <laughs> listen to that one. Well, Good. you'd be you'd be the guest star, I think. Mm-hmm. Again, yeah. <laughs> oh wow, so so honored to have you, David. Uh, since I don't I don't know, I mean, Chris gave you a nice introduction. Tell me a little bit more about what you do. What's your what's your practice and field of focus and all that, other than the role playing games, which is great. Sure. Yeah. Well, it's a it's it's a it's a fun mix. Uh, so, you know, I I currently am. Uh, working primarily with university students uh, as I, I work in one of the large universities uh, here in the Vancouver area as a counselor and that's been a few years and then actually before that I was um, uh, in the area of youth suicide prevention and intervention uh, so really um, developed uh, quite a passion and and uh, you know, just learned a lot uh, about, you know, the application of all that and, and some of the really cool research that's being done. Um, so yeah, that's that's been one of the things that's followed me for sure. Uh, you know, you, once people figure out that, you know, you've worked with a lot of those types of clients, you, you kind of become the guy who, who gets a lot of them on their caseload. Uh, <laughs> but, mm-hmm. You know, this is something that obviously every one of us uh, work with. So 
um, yeah. And then I, uh, yeah, I have a small uh, private practice here in the, in the lower mainland too. Right on. Well, great. You're, you're the, you're the guy to talk to then about this. This is great. Well, cool. I guess Chris, Chris dropped this question on us and, uh, and I, I'm so glad you're here because I probably would have stumbled around a little bit, but, uh, <laughs> So the questions were, how do you support a family member or friend who's feeling suicidal? Or how do you respond to these suicidal feelings and thoughts if you're experiencing them yourself? So I guess let's dive in, right? Yeah, and I'm going to make it a mission to make to make you all say the word suicide as many times as, as we possibly can. Um, that's that's so awkward, isn't it, sometimes? Even even for us as clinicians, you know, it, uh you know, but I think the that that's really a conversation that just needs to happen more. Mm -hmm. uh, so I don't know what what do you what do y'all think? Well, first off, David, um, I agree with you completely that we need to say the word suicide more often. I do find myself sometimes in sessions saying, "Do you have thoughts of harming yourself?" And then I catch myself and say, "Are you having suicidal thoughts?" Um, just to normalize that phrase and to be so direct and clear about it, and make it okay for the other person to talk about. Um, and so, in some regards, the Part of the answer to the first question, I think, is using the appropriate language mm -hmm. in supporting the other person so that I feel like it's such a scary thing, especially um, for parents and loved ones if a family member is feeling suicidal. And often there's so many feelings of helplessness from that person of not knowing what to do and not wanting to make it worse. And um, yeah, yeah. I find um sometimes it's i differentiate sometimes in session i'll ask are you having thoughts of harming yourself and i do like you brooke catch myself and but i also think when i ask about that i'm asking also about self-harm because some people have thoughts of self-harming and not the intention for suicide so i try to differentiate and try to check in for self-harm behaviors versus actually wanting to yeah um take their own life so it's um i i try to ask if i ever worry um and i'll even say I'm going to the uncomfortable place. I want to just say it as it is. Um, but one thing that comes to mind is some people are worried that if they ask about suicide, that they're going to put the idea in their loved one's head or, you know, oh, if I bring it up or if I ask my kid, maybe they'll start, you know, will that lead them down that way? And I, I feel like that's a, a myth. I don't think that tends to be the case at all. So mm -hmm. I think there's yeah. a lot of different myths to maybe um, correct or to demystify for sure. I was just going to say, I had the, the pleasure of uh, speaking with Stacy Friedenthal, who's a, a researcher on uh, suicidality at uh, University of Denver. And she actually studied whether or not, I don't know if she studied it or if she just told me about a study, one or the other, but talked about how um, clinicians tend to not want to even mention the word with their clients out of fear that it will plant the thought in their head that they might, uh, you know, maybe, maybe that will cause them to think about suicide, cause the, the client to think about suicide. And that's just not the case. It just doesn't pan out. Like, yeah, if you just, just say the word, like you, like you guys are saying, normalize it. Let's just be able to talk about it openly, you know, harming yourself and suicidality are not the same thing and they're not coming from the same place. So if you're going to be direct about it, then, uh, just say the words, you know, mm -hmm. yeah. mm. Yeah, it's 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 obviously important to to know exactly what information you're getting too, um, and you know I think I think we think about this in a professional contexts, um, and it's easy to do that. You know, like I know I I put on my therapist hat, and you know I can ask every single person I meet with in the course of my day, like, hey, have you had any suicidal thoughts? And it's nothing. Like that just becomes so routine, right? Um, but I've had to do this in my personal life too. And it was just awful. Like it's way, way different. Um, and I think this is, you know, that's the message that we need to get out. There's that, you know, even, even if professionals are, are having fear um, about the possibility of implanting the idea of suicide in, in a client's head, you know, imagine what, what a loved one, you know, a, a parent or, or a friend, um, you know, the fear that they're probably struggling with. And so I think that's why a lot of the prevention and awareness campaigns and messaging is focused on just talking more and, and trying to dispel that fear. And on that front, you know, we're, it's really great that that 
um, effort is being put out there more and more. Uh, I think there's still lots and lots to do uh, on a systemic level. Um, you know, there's, there's, you know, I don't know how controversial we're allowed to get on the podcast, but um, this is listened yeah. to very, you know, people are listening with a very, <laughs> very critical, critical scrutinizing eye. So I'm just yeah. joking. Uh, yeah. Get as controversial as you'd like to. Let's stir up some controversy. In fact, we're doing it. Yeah. Um, well, I think, and I think it's, it's a, it's a kind of a, you know, the, the, the change that I'm hearing about a lot, and this is kind of coming from uh, the, you know, more so a community of, of uh, people who have survived suicide attempts um, are just more and more criticism of like the active rescue style um, prevention efforts that are so, so heavily emphasized. Uh, and I think more with, you know, with more and more awareness, uh, especially in the recent years of just the, you know, the, the inequities and the oppression faced particularly by, you know, uh, our, our BIPOC uh, folks, you know, Black Indigenous people of color and, you know, just jumping right away to emergency services, uh, you know, can be actually a, a very different reality for, for some people. Uh, and it could even, you know, cause some problems. So we have to kind of hold that and, you know, this really, you know, tenuous space of, um, you know, we got to do something to help, right? We, we can't just stand by and do nothing. Um, so it's a bit of a tangent from our question, I know, which is about, yeah. you know, how do we help a loved one or, or even ourselves if, if that's where we're at, if we're thinking of suicide. Just, but, just to point out for some, for the non-clinicians who listen, you know, that just that pointing out that controversy is sort of a, an, an interesting one, right? Then that is something that people, um, therapists have, have oftentimes done, at least in the past is kind of, as soon as the word is mentioned, they get, they get out of their own anxiety. Oftentimes they go, Oh my gosh, well, I guess we need to hospitalize or we need to get some other authorities involved and we need to, you know, call in the, the brigade to, uh, to, to do something about this when so much of the time that's actually an over overreaction and does more harm than good. Mm-hmm. So there's been a lot of pushback against that from what you're saying, David. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it does, you know, I don't think there's a good solution, right. Uh, you know, we can't expect people who are just doing their best, but, but, you know, they haven't done any kind of training in, in mental health support. They have, you know, they're scared. They, you know, they want to make sure their loved one is, is okay and safe. Um, and, it, you know, I think the hospital is kind of the safest place to be, you know, if you're ever in doubt. Um, but there's, a, I think, a whole human component uh, that, you know, we can incorporate into that process, right? Just the, the listening and the really kind of just empathizing and being there, right, as a loved one. Um, that is, you know, if we skip over that, like, we, we can actually um, reinforce, you know, like, distrust of the healthcare system and, like, just you know, make it actually much less likely for a person to seek out help, even if they have a negative experience. Um, Yeah, that's, that's something we want to avoid. So, you know, ask, ask them how they're doing, you know, ask them clearly and, and, uh, you know, in a direct way, are you having thoughts of suicide? Have you been thinking about killing yourself? And that way, if you, if they answer yes or no, you, you know exactly what they're, what they're telling you. Um, and you know, that's the thing, there's absolutely no research to support the idea that this is going to give someone thoughts uh, or make someone want, uh, to actually go through with suicide. Yeah. There's, it's been a question for decades and no, no research has ever supported that conclusion. Yeah. So, So I'm assuming, uh, I think a few podcasts ago, we talked about supporting family members who are experiencing mental health concerns and and we talked a bit about how they're, uh, they might be deviating from their baseline a bit. They may feel kind of low or, or down. Um, like, would there be some, I guess, signature or, or types of behaviors to look for for someone who might be suicidal? Like when to ask that question? When to ask that question? Because yeah, uh, I'm assuming it's when you're again when uh, you're starting to uh, maybe 
um, avoid or, or shut down or not engaging in life or you're, you don't have that, that balance that you typically have. Mm -hmm. who, who, who remembers the acronyms? <laughs> yeah, I think there's, there's lots of acronyms out there to, to look to think about warning signs. But yeah. um, I don't. I don't really love. I don't really love them, to be honest. I think it it kind of overcomplicates the issue. Like like you were saying, Chris. Like, you know, you know this person. Hopefully, uh, and is this really weird for them? Is this like is this kind of giving you like a gut feeling that something like they're just not well, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, can you put enough of those puzzle pieces together to to sort of justify a, a that much level of concern? Mm -hmm. um, certainly, you know, there there are bigger puzzle pieces than others right um so those are helpful to maybe consider right if if a person's kind of making jokes about death or dying or kind of vague remarks about not wanting to be around or just i can't do it anymore and you know that that that's kind of an invitation to you know start asking some questions um but i mean there's there's lots there's lots of ways that people deviate from that baseline like you were saying chris mm -hmm. yeah. Good. So as clinicians, we may be using our clinical judgment to kind of assess, you know, based on what we know, what we've seen from past suicidal clients and that sort of thing. Um, but if we're talking about family and friends, then I guess we're talking about just what seems out of place maybe, or what, uh, you know, what things makes the makes feel like something's off there. Is that, would that be fair to say? I think so. Yeah. Particularly with family, like, and, you know, I think, uh, you know, they're often the first or family or friends, like if it's, a, if it's a teen or, or a youth, I mean, it's often the friends who might be in a better position to kind of hear about these things first before, before parents or family members uh, or teachers, like teachers often are, a, you know, like they might see in that, that, kids English homework, you know, a, a really kind of morbid story about death and that's not normal for that kid. I mean, that that's, yeah, we want to, you know, just be making sure that kid has support. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. What do you, okay, because I know we're, for as clinicians, if I were to ask and I'd explore kind of what those thoughts of suicide were, are they passive thoughts? Are they wanting to act on those thoughts? I'd look at kind of that intention um, and if they have a plan and whatnot. And so there could just be, you know what? I just don't actually want to kill myself. I just don't want to be here anymore. Or, you know, you explore that. But if, how does a family member, if, if they do find out a loved one does think about suicide, mm -hmm. what would they do? Like, how do they know is my loved one gonna, you know, take their life tonight? Uh, or, or are they just wanting, like, you know, or are they just thinking like they just need to escape? Or how do they gauge what to do? Do they call the police? Do they get them to a hospital? Or is it uh, they just check in on them every now and then? Like, how would we, what would we recommend for someone in that way? Which is, yeah, any thoughts? That's a question, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's a tough question, Joanna. Mm -hmm. Like it is. It is. We are, as clinicians, trained to do these risk assessments, but obviously family members aren't. And David, like you said, often they're so anxious or stressed. Mm -hmm. uh, like they obviously, we don't want to get it wrong, and they really don't want to get it wrong. And there's anxiety and stress around that. And um, and a lot of my parents with teens, there's been a lot of teenager clients right now with higher suicidal thoughts and. Um, yeah, and parents just get quite exceptionally worried, right? So luckily, these clients do have clinicians that they connect with, including myself. So we can help coach those parents, like on what to do. And, and that might be an important part for the parents is for them to reach out for support, mm -hmm. whether yes. it be family doctor, counselor, or a service provider in the community, just to get some guidance on that. Yeah. I think it's going to be important. Like, don't fight it alone. I know sometimes it can be stigmatizing. We don't want to talk about these things, but we don't want to do this alone. That's yeah. for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember uh, Brooke, you mentioned you talked to a, a parent of one of your clients, and and you talked to her about her reaction um, to her daughter's the thoughts and and the feelings that she was having, and um, just trying to coach the mom a bit in terms of 
being supportive and, and validating and listening and, and not freaking out, right? Just saying, okay, yeah. we, you know, we'll get through this and yeah. and we'll get through this together and we'll make sure that you have, you have the supports in place and, and whatnot. And it seemed like that was really good advice, uh, you know, for parents to have, right? Mm -hmm. Like offering some reassurance, you know, to that person, but also making sure that the parent has someone that they're going to lean on for support, whether it's the other parent or a good friend or someone, because behind closed doors, I mean, this person's going to be freaking out and they need to definitely have their own supports there. Right. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't seep out onto the family member. Yeah. Because when someone's in emotional chaos, we need to stay so grounded and regulated for them. And if they think that you're not going to be able to handle it, then it's going to be a lot harder for them to come to you. Um, if they think that, yeah, that you are going to crash and burn or if it's going to negatively affect you. And or in, at least in my experience and my clients, that's kind of what I'm hearing. I think that's just it, Brooke. I mean, if you imagine the absence of that, right, for, for someone who's in that much despair, Right. And, and I know it's, it's not an easy thing. And I apologize listeners for, for kind of asking you to sort of put yourself in this mindset, but, you know, just to kind of briefly entertain that, that, you know, idea that, you know, wow, you know, things are so painful for me that I just, I can't even imagine living right now. Um, how badly are you wanting to open up about that? Like how badly are you wanting to be vulnerable about that? You know, is it possible that you've been rejected once or twice? Is it possible maybe that you've been kind of ostracized or that you feel like you, you don't belong, you don't fit in, people don't want to know, and that you're just a burden on them? I mean, these are the things that we hear, right? And and like it it seems like such a small thing when we talk about it to be like, yes, like just kind of ask and listen and and be genuine and you know, be there for them. But that's a huge, it's a huge thing when you think about the absence or the opposite of that, right? You know, because these are people who have, if not outright experienced that, the opposite of that, then they imagine experiencing it all the time. And that, and that fear can be a big barrier. So, you know, to feel like, yes, this person wants to talk to me about this. Like I have someone who, who I can talk to about it because I'm scared about it. Um, is a game changer and it's a huge strength. It's not, it's not going to solve the problem. It's not treatment, right? But it, it, is certainly a big step in a, in a good direction, right? And it's uh, one of those huge like protective factors that we often talk about, right? That that connection to family or to supportive others, um, you know, that, that also provides like one of those reasons to live. Mm -hmm. Yeah, big time. So, so I guess you gotta kind of gauge um, what's going on with that individual. Joanna mentioned before that it might just be thoughts like sometimes I just don't wanna be here versus I'm thinking about this and assessing about this. I have a plan to try and engage that. Um, mm -hmm. If it seems like it's uh, in one of those intensive situations where there is a, a plan or a fixation on it, then that might be a, 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 um, maybe one of those situations where you get someone else involved, where you may have to make that call or get some support. Is that safe to say? I think so. Yeah. And I'm sure we've all kind of had situations, you know, where people have asked us about that or, you know, we, we've kind of made those kinds of calls. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's really kind of like, what side do you want to err on? Right? I mean, you know, we, you know, and anyone listening who might have training in the area, you know, like it is a lot of training, like to do like a suicide risk assessment, like that, you know, yeah. So I think sometimes we take that for granted, but you know, that that's, you know, that's a skill, right. And, and that's mm -hmm. a lot of responsibility, right. And that's not something that, you know, we want to put on a family member, right. You don't want to be making that decision. Uh, See, so if you're thinking like, what do I want to do? Like, yeah, erring on the side of, okay, well, I have no idea what else to do. I feel like I want to get a professional involved or I want to kind of like, you know, there's nowhere else for me to go. So I'm going to, you know, take them to the emergency room. Or, or kind of ask them if I can take them and, and just kind of hopefully voluntarily get there. Um, but let's, let's get practical here for a second, mm -hmm. David. Let's say that mm -hmm. you're, you're, a, you're a parent and you have a, a kid, a teenager who is expressing some suicidality. And maybe it's not quite clear if, it's, if there's really a plan involved, but you know, 
man, I just wish I was dead or I, I wish I wasn't here anymore. And you're not getting much more than that. And you want to actually talk, talk to them about some additional help because you as the parent feel under-equipped. How, what kind of language does a, does a parent use, do you think, to try to encourage, help, help the kids see that maybe there's more help that can be uh, obtained and, and maybe utilized by the kid, you know? Hopefully it's the kid. Hopefully it's the kid's language. I guess that's the starting point. Yeah, mm -hmm. sure. Sure. I just think it's a scary topic for, for a parent or a scary thought, you know, and, and they're afraid of like, I don't want to push the kid too far and push them away. They also don't want to, um, you know, blow the thing off and, and not make a, a big enough deal of a very important issue. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering in those moments, I don't have children, <laughs> but um, I do work with teenagers and have for a while. And I, I, I'm wondering your thoughts for those people, the, the two of you that have children uh, or as clinicians, everyone at the table here to again, be a bit more direct about it. And because um, we know when someone's in emotional chaos or distress, that they're gonna have a hard time making decisions um, and futuristic thinking and being reasonable. So to be able to say, hey, I'm noticing these things and like you're having these thoughts, they are suicidal thoughts. Here's what I think we should do. Yeah. I think that we should find someone for you to talk to in the community, get you a counselor. This is what to expect and provide that direction. So it's not a, a wishy-washy decision. Um, it's more like you're telling them what you've decided and you want them on board. I, I think it's it's another one of those things like there's two extremes that that are really unhelpful, right? Which is like, what are you talking about? You know, your life's not that bad. You know, like, yeah, if you're yeah, you want to do that, go ahead. I'll be down here. Uh, yeah, and, you'll be you know, fine. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. That that's you know incredibly invalidating, and the kid's never going to talk to you again uh, about that about their suicidal thoughts. And then there's the other extreme of of like be, it becoming about you right? Like you become so stressed out by this that, that you start to talk about how anxious you are and I'm scared and you become visibly stressed and you lose your ability to regulate your yeah. emotions and your distress and, and the same result, right? Kids going to think, Oh, you know, I don't want to burden mom or dad. You know, I, I don't want to, I don't want to stress them out. Right. And they, they get to that parentification kind of, uh, you know, thing going on. So, you know, just try to find a happy middle place. I don't, I don't think there's like practical action steps that are really going <laughs> to sort of yeah. land for everyone. But, you know, like if you can genuinely sort of state that, hey, you know, I care about you. I love you. I'm worried about you, you know, and I want to help. Like I want to help and we can do this together, right? Emphasize that that hope uh, and that, that, you know, recovery is, is possible. And lots of people, lots of people, like statistically we know, particularly for kids, 10 to 12 percent you know uh in that age range are going to think about suicide every every year right it's not uncommon um so that that's the starting point and then and then it, yeah like you said brooke i like that idea of kind of being directed I mean, like hey let's come up with a plan you know let's get you connected with some support you know I, let me help you with that right mm -hmm. um we don't want to force them into anything because that that sets up a <laughs> pretty bad yeah dynamic right that's but yeah no no i like I that i don't know how many times i don't know if it's happened for you guys too but where a teenager comes in and they're like oh i didn't even know i was coming here until 10 minutes ago mm. I'm like first session i'm like <laughs> great, great. <laughs> okay so, so we're from here right and meanwhile you pull the parent in and then they have their list but yeah they kind of get ambushed on their way in like way to set me up for success here parents thank you i appreciate that yeah. Yeah. I like that collaborative approach though, you know, as I love you, I care about you. I want to make sure that you're safe. Um, I'm not sure, you know, exactly what we should do, but let's figure this out together. This is what I think we can do and let's connect to the proper supports. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cause you're um, leaning into it. You're showing that you're not scared of it, that you can hold it, that you can manage it, um, that you can be there for them. And again, yeah. that can be so stressful as a parent. So just making sure that you as the support person have your own supports to say, oh my gosh, that was so difficult and challenging. And I almost 
cried and I was shaking and I fumbled my words and I hope they didn't notice. Um, it's so important to have that person for yourself. Yeah. True. Yeah. Should we explore the next question? What do you think, Ryan? I thought, I thought that was that was that was a really interesting question. The second one, uh, and I don't think that gets asked a whole lot. Yeah. Um, like what to do for the self? Like if the if a listener right now, like if there is a listener feeling suicidal, what to do to help the self? How do you respond to these suicidal feelings and thoughts if you're experiencing them yourself? Yes. What can you do if you're feeling? Like you don't aren't if you aren't so attached to living right now, which would be kind of the most passive way to look at it. Or if you're really contemplating taking your life, you know, what would that committing suicide? Not committing, uh, committing suicide, attempting or no, but the the terminology of that is uh, is important these days, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yes, so we've talked about that a little bit in the past, but yes, completing suicide or attempting something like that but committing feels that has too much criminal sort of a, a component to it um so what would you do what would we how would we respond to people or what what should our listeners do if they're feeling this way or anyone who's uh feeling suicidal share share it say it out loud to someone um just don't keep it to yourself especially if those thoughts are becoming more frequent and, and it's mm -hmm. just share it with someone, right? If, if you don't feel able to call, you know, go to the hospital or call out to a crisis line or yourself, uh, share with a loved one, just, just don't keep that to yourself would be my first thing. Yeah. Which is so tough though, isn't it, Joe? Because oh my gosh, uh, yeah. the term burden came up earlier and yeah. a lot of the clients I've worked with who, um, or people within the social, social network who've, felt suicidal at times often feel like an extreme burden so they don't want to talk to family and friends about it right they mm -hmm. they want to often suffer in silence so not an easy task there to to speak out right no it's, it's also so vulnerable yeah to to actually share that with someone right and you know if if, if you're not comfortable if you're kind of just having these thoughts and you're not wanting to go first to a family member like there are crisis lines or online sources where you can chat rooms, right? And if, you know, and there you have to be ready that they're going to gauge and do a risk assessment of, of your safety. Um, but if there's just troubling thoughts you need to talk to, there are anonymous resources and things you can do. Um, mm -hmm. But no, by no means is it easy. It's, um, yeah. Yeah. You know, one thing I like to remind clients is that you are not your thoughts, right? You are the space and place where those uh, thoughts occur. So, um, because those thoughts could be very frequent and intensive and negative, it doesn't mean that they're the truth, right? Um, so that's kind of where that mindfulness comes in again, trying to notice those thoughts non-judgmentally or curiosity. But because that first thought that pops into our minds, we cannot control it unless you guys know something I do not. It's the second thought we choose to have is where that growth often takes place, right? You, you can't control your first thought, Chris. I feel bad I for you. <laughs> Right. Um, yeah. So, so, so like, don't don't think about Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. You know. Oh, <laughs> yeah. sorry. Just made y'all think of Rudolph. Mm -hmm. Can't really control that. But yeah, what you do with it next is uh, is more manageable. Yeah, I like to I, I like to think about like the distress tolerance side side of things too. Um, and I think, you know, like one of the myths out there about about people who are suicidal that I hear often is like, you know, and it's the same reason that, that people put up a big fuss about spending public money on like, like suicide prevention barriers or, or nets under bridges, things like that to say, well, you know, they're just going to find a way to kill themselves anyway. Why would we waste money on that? Right. <clears throat> and, and there's this lack of understanding that what's actually going on a lot of the times for people who are chronically suicidal or even just kind of, you know, Hey, this is a really awful moment in their life is that it's a crisis moment, right? They get into a crisis and it's not a logical place. It's a, it's a place that's dictated by distress uh, and despair and, and desperation. And, but you know, that that's not a permanent thing, right? It kind of comes in a huge wave, but then the wave subsides, right? 
and a lot of the sort of you know systemic work around suicide prevention is around you know just kind of making it way well easier to ride through the wave of that distress by kind of making it more difficult to actually attempt while the person's in that state of distress right because then it goes by and then it's like okay well yeah i can i can i can i can live for a little bit longer right and that that buys time for intervention that buys for time for the person to kind of you know seek seek help or you know talk to you know connections or for things to kind of turn around in their life yeah um so so being able to tolerate distress in, in different ways or even just kind of being able to, to kind of remind oneself that you know that height of distress is not permanent mm. you know all they have to do is kind of ride it out and having the tools and the skills to do that can be really really important true um in malcolm gladwell's recent book he talked a bit about that yeah, how, I thought about uh, that too. Displacement versus coupling. That's right. Yeah. And Sylvia Plath story and, and how uh, people often think that, oh, if you take away someone's ability to commit suicide, then they're just going to find another way. But that actually doesn't happen. Often they're fixated or focused on one particular uh, method. And if you can help someone or neutralize that, then there's an opportunity there for them to get the support they need. So... Yeah. So and how, how dehumanizing is that too? Just to think of someone who's like their entire state of living is just wanting to die all the time or, yeah. or kind of looking for ways to die all the time. Like, it, you know, these are people, mm -hmm. this is a person, right? They, yeah. they want to, they want to, they want to live. They just don't want to be in agony and, and suffering all the time. Yeah. And yeah, chances sure. are they experience joy in their day. Mm. There's still maybe not uh, a huge wave of happiness that that's long lasting, but there's joy, there's laughter, there's humor, there's connection. Those pieces are, are still in their day. Just thinking about your humanizing comment there, right? Like they are human. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, um, David, we did a book. Uh, we read a book together and did a bit of a. We got to report back on it a couple of weeks ago on together from Vivek H. Murthy, hmm. Surgeon General. So you talked a lot about the. Uh, the impact of loneliness and mm -hmm. some really cool initiatives to get people connecting. So yeah, there could be opportunities like that, um, you know, to, to connect or to engage in a hobby or a passion or, or find some meaning and purpose. Yeah. No, there's a speaker, uh, a pretty well-known speaker by the name of Kevin Hines, who, um, you know, is, is best known uh, for being a survivor of jumping from the Golden Gate Bridge in, in mm. San Francisco. Uh, so, uh, and that was when he was, I think in his early twenties, he says that was, you know, I don't know, 15 or 16 years ago or something like that, but he lived right. Which is quite rare from, from that particular event. Um, but, uh, there's a, a interview that, that I watched of him and, you know, the one thing always stands out, uh, which is, you know, he's kind of recounting that day and, you know, he says, well, I, I you know, I went down there. I uh, got to the bridge and I, I sort of, you know, paced around back and forth and I thought about it. I think it was like for hours, like it was, he was there for a while, right? And, and he said, nobody cared. He was just kind of like on the railing. Nobody cared. You know, a German couple came up and asked if, if he could take their picture, mm -hmm. I think was the, the extent of the human interaction he got. Uh, and then at that point, he's like, you know, it's just nobody cares. It's not worth it. So imagine though, if someone had come along and asked him like, hey, are you okay? Like, really, I'm a little worried about you. Like, you know, um, I don't know, it may not have solved, you know, the very complicated and real issues that, that you know, were, he was going through that were driving, mm -hmm. uh, you know, those thoughts of suicide. But, you know, hey, for that day, maybe, maybe he would, have, would not have made that jump. Yeah, for sure. D David, um... Are, are adolescents are they more susceptible to feeling suicidal um obviously it's a could be a very tumultuous time increasing neurons lack of pathways very emotional lots of intensive thoughts higher um, impulsivity impulsivity higher focus on social interactions like what do you know what the data is on on that not to put you on the spot yeah i have difficulty with the question chris i, I think okay. maybe the question might be flawed <laughs> um 
I, uh, I don't know for sure. Like I, I can give you statistics on like the groups that, that are, are sort of most represented uh, among, you know, suicide deaths. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that tells the, the, the full picture of the story, right? Because because it, it, it tells us that, you know, white middle-aged men die the most, are the, the highest risk group. <laughs> First, exactly. Right. And that, that's, uh, me, that's my group. Yeah, I'm with Chris you. Is yeah. Too, <laughs> you? Chris is getting a little older. Oh. Yeah. Yep. Um, so I think, and it, but you could throw you another statistic that might make you think, well, it is kids, right? You know, suicide is the second leading cause of death for people under the age of 24. So who is it, right? You know, it's all relative. Um, you know, I think, I think we, 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 we have a tough time with, with adolescents and, and kids. Mm-hmm. And obviously we have a tough time looking at that rationally and, and logically because, because they're young people, like they're kids, like the, the idea of like that, that, you know, lost potential, like it's just really hard for us to, to sit with, right? I think the, the thing that I would want listeners to really understand is that there is no group that does not experience this, right? Mm-hmm. There is no group. Like it affects people of all ages, socioeconomic statuses. Mm-hmm. Like it doesn't matter if you're rich or you're poor or you're white or you're a person of color, um, you know, anything, you know, and, and it's so complicated. Like it, you, we can't ever kind of point to one thing that as a cause because it's, you know, often many, many things. Yeah, no, well said. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's important too because I think there could be a lot of shame that some people feel um, if they were to admit that they feel certain, you know, feel like, um, you know, attempting suicide. And I think it's just important, whether for listeners or to be able to tell loved ones, like wherever you're at, you know, for whatever reason, there's, I think they're afraid of people being like, well, why are you feeling that way? You got it all or, um, in, but whatever you feel is okay. And wherever you're at, like, it's just, we want to know. And, um, it's, you know, whatever led up to that point or whatever's contributing to it, we, you know, we want to help you with that. We want to kind of help you with whatever's troubling you, but there's, I, I feel like there's shame or there's stigma around it that maybe prevent people from reaching out or judgment they're worried about. So, we're trying to work on that with the mental health yeah. world, but it's, um, yeah, I think it's a bit of a battle. Yeah. You know, there is, there is one issue that I think is really, that really kind of weighs on this, uh, that's often unspoken about here in Canada, at least anyway, I don't know, Ryan, if you have a different story to tell on this, but, uh, firearms, right. Mm-hmm. Having firearms in the home is a huge risk factor. Like, like that is, um, uh, you know, if we had to pick one thing, like if, if public prevention efforts focused on one thing, like I think firearm safety and, and you know, um, what to do with firearms when there's a suicidal person in the home uh, is is one of those things. We don't talk about it often up here in Canada because I think just the cultural discussion and, and sort of perspective on firearms is quite a bit different. But I don't know, Ryan, like what, what comes up for you on, on that one? Oh, I've heard that certainly mentioned here as far as, you know, other ways to, to take that, that risk, you know, oftentimes suicidality is such an impulsive thing. And if you've got the means sitting right next to you on your you know bedside table, that's, that's going to increase that risk quite a bit. Um, and certainly here, yeah, absolutely. Of course, gun ownership and, and, you know, our second amendment stuff, the right to bear arms is, uh, is a hotly contested issue, but uh, I mean, and it's not only, there's so many people with guns here that that accidental death by gunfire is a leading a major cause of death here as well. Just, there's guns everywhere. So, um, and certainly for, for suicidality, I think that's something definitely to take into consideration. I think we could also talk about, I mean, maybe to give if we're going to spread around some controversy maybe we should throw some uh some shade on on big pharma as well and uh you know because a lot of suicide attempts are from medications and there's a whole lot of uh you know some would say over prescription of uh some lethal medications down here as well that uh, people it's not too hard to get your hands on some of that well i mean if you're if you're like struggling heavily with an opioid addiction 
Yeah. And all you have to do is, you know, you know, like the, the five or six, you know, pharmacists or doctors or whatever in your area who have no qualms about sort of prescribing. Uh, yeah. It's, it's a good thing that's been brought into sharper focus. Uh, yeah. And I know, yeah, it's, it often is like, and that's where often numbers are tough to kind of rely on too, because we sometimes don't know like, oh, was this death accidental or, or not? Right. I mean, like there's so many, so many, it's so complex. Yeah. Interesting. Um, oh, oh, go ahead, Ron. Yeah. Uh, kind of tangential, but something that actually came up earlier this week. Um, I live in, in Pasadena and there's a, a somewhat famous bridge here, the Colorado Street Bridge that is not as famous as, as the Golden Gate Bridge, but in Southern California, this Colorado Street Bridge is known as Suicide Bridge. And that's uh, just because it's you know way too often the, the, the final leap of, uh, of a lot of people. And, and down here several years ago, um, if, if I'm not mistaken, the, uh, the local news uh, service down here decided to stop uh, talking about the, the folks who had uh, completed suicide off that bridge because of the concerns of like, it, there was kind of a lot of them, like monthly. And just the thought of like, that might, um, that might uh, spur copycats or, you know, contagion. again, what's that? The contagion effect. Maybe? The contagion effect. Yeah. So I just find that kind of an interesting thing of like, we're talking before about how we shouldn't be shy about asking people right to their face. Hey, you know, are you feeling suicidal? But then also there are other, other measures about, well, maybe we shouldn't be talking as loudly about how, how many mm. people are committing or, or completing suicide uh, and even attempting on a regular basis. Yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, that, that's another one of those like rock and a hard place kind of yeah. issues, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. There's another, so I think the contagion effect is, is pretty well known and, and research does back it up. So I mean, that there's a reason you hear about police incidents on bridges instead of there's a jumper on the bridge. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Uh, so, but there's a much, I think there's a, equivalently important uh, effect and, and it happens to have a much funner name uh which is called the it's called the papagino effect uh and it's based i think the name comes from an italian opera uh you know i i don't follow opera i don't really know much about that part of it all but i, I believe the opera is about you know someone who uh you know um you know, was, was kind of leaning in that direction of, of kind of a, a copycat behavior, but then, you know, uh, didn't, ended up, ended up, it ended up being a happy ending. So the Papageno effect is actually describes when media coverage is positive, when it's, when it's done well, uh, when it's sort of follows good guidelines that have been sort of scientifically backed up and emphasizes hope and recovery and, and, provides greater access to like things like crisis lines and other kinds of services um suicide rates go down so it's the total opposite effect of of the contagion effect so it it, i think the conclusion we come to is like well it's not whether or not we talk about it it's how we talk about it right so if you see a newspaper article that's like this big sensational headline you know so-and-so celebrity tries to hang themselves but then you know, it's sharing details of methods and it's really sensationalizing and, and making it all about, you know, uh, oversimplifying and, and just kind of, you know, then we get people identifying with that person's suffering and all of this, then yeah, we do see suicide rates go up. We also see help-seeking behaviors go up, uh, which is important to note. But, you know, if, if the media source is, is doing their job and following the, the very well-advertised and well-marketed uh, suicide reporting guidelines that are available in many organizations. The American Association of Suicidology makes these very uh, available, as well as the Canadian Association of Suicide Prevention. I mean, we could we could do that. That's an easy change, but it, it's fewer clicks, probably. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I think it's... Yeah, I don't know, Chris, you've talked about that, if there's been big deaths in the pop culture that clients might come in and be having a harder time with that, right? Or I think it's helpful when 
mental health is talked about more and people are realizing that celebrities or people in the limelight they can have their struggles too and it's not this sought after life and everyone's good and they had it all um so I think the more that people are able to share struggles and it's um not idealizing this life for well if they couldn't do it then I can't and trying to just stop that effect from happening or just in general if I don't know yeah I think there's so many different variables yeah for sure keep throwing throwing new uh new angles onto this it's going to be tough to to wind it down yeah no kidding is, <laughs> is that time to wind it down because i had another question but i hit we got no time idea. for another question we got those on. you're here forever David. yeah this is typically how it goes though it's like okay yeah yeah um this might be uh there's a lot of differences here in terms of how we do things up here in vancouver area and and uh, how I think things work down this um, south of the border. But uh, for some clients, they go into our mental health facilities and they get an assessment. And usually within 24 hours or 48 hours, they're, they're released. In some circumstances, it seems like they're very intensive situations. And uh, so, and they're discharged uh, often against the family's wishes because they feel very powerless. My understanding is uh, in maybe other places like down south, there, there's mental health um, programs, more longer term programs, for instance, that, that could offer a bit more stability. Um, any research out there in regard to what would be best for someone who is experiencing uh, suicidal thoughts or feelings? Is it best to get discharged you know, back into the community? Or um, would it be better to, you know, in Vancouver, if we had... Um, a, a program that we could refer clients to that could be a little more supportive. You guys don't have long-term facilities like like a like a psych hospital or you know no. uh, there there are you psych like, units yeah. yeah units but, but, but units, units short term yeah so so there was a big decision years ago to decentralize we had a big mental health hospital called Riverview. And then they decided to maybe invest that money more in the community supports. So we have mental health units and hospitals, mm -hmm. but it's, it's just that often. They, they forgot the second half of that. They, they defunded the hospitals and then they forgot to have the funding into the community. Mm -hmm. Well, forgot, forgot is probably being generous, but um, yeah, it's, it's, it, you know, again, it's just like, you know, how do you, how it's a reality, you know, that, that the services are underfunded. You know, probably everywhere right unless unless you have i mean that's that's maybe where you know the advantage of being well resourced and and you know so forth can can really be a, a protective factor but um there's no sometimes i think it deals particularly for for families who you know have a loved one who is kind of like a, a more complex case they've got lots of different intersecting you know, diagnoses or, or kind of issues going on and they're kind of in and out of the hospital, in and out of different programs, you know, there's no kind of like person, like there's no like one person, you know, that's kind of there throughout. Um, we're just kind of doing the best we can in this really fragmented and underfunded system. Um, I guess my response to your initial question, Chris, was like, you know, I don't know, I, I think a lot about um, Marsha Linehan's story. So Mar Marsha Linehan is the, the godmother, the very godmother of, of dialectical behavior therapy, which is a very, very kind of well-known and well-regarded empirically supported form of cognitive behavior therapy um, that kind of really kind of hones in on this kind of this dialectic, right? This, this sort of, you know, complicated sort of contradictory relationship between acceptance and change. I know you know all of that, but I, I don't want to just kind of throw names of stuff out there no, without any context. It's good. Um, Ryan would have asked you, so yeah, good. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, it's good. No, Marcia, we, I mean, yeah, Dr. Linehan is her. She actually published a book recently. It was all about her sort of personal story, but but one like really kind of like big conclusion in there is like you know, going to the hospital for her was like a personal hell, and it made things worse. So she kind of made it her mission to kind of fund and, and kind of look into research about like, hey, what actually happens to people when they're hospitalized after a suicidal crisis, right? 
And it, it's pretty disappointing, right? The research that's coming out, it's, it's worrisome that, you know, oftentimes it's, it's within that sort of post-hospitalization or post-release period that people are actually at a higher risk. So, I mean, to me, that just points out like, you know, like it's, it's the way in which this is happening. Like it's the dehumanization, it's the kind of you know, taking agency away from people. Uh, it's, you know, trying to force treatment um, that, you know, it's not a long-term solution. It maybe gets a person through a crisis and that's important. Right. But if that's not followed up with with like, you know, effective and thoughtful and, and humane uh, treatment and care, like it's the person, you know, they're no, they're no better off. And they may feel like, well, that didn't work. So, you know, that's not a hopeful <laughs> message, I guess. No, but you it's kind of like, like we have to talk point. about these two pieces, right? There's the getting through a crisis yeah. piece and then there's the hey let's work on it piece. And, and, you know, I think that, that let's work on it piece, you know, often the healthcare system is just playing catch up, right? They're trying to pull people out of the river, you know, and, you know, and then, then they see there's another person floating down the river and they rush to pull that one out and there's not really much, much resources or ability to kind of um, really help people kind of recover. So that's where I think, you know, if there was a message, like let's, let's kind of, you know, if I'm a family member and I'm, and I'm kind of wanting to know what can I do, it's like, you really try to um, try to help that person really connect with that, that recovery process, that, that treatment process and, and, you know, encourage and, and, you know, um, you know, keep at it. Cause it can sometimes be a bit of a shopping process and can, there can be obstacles and a person yeah. might need some encouragement. Ryan, what's it uh, what's it like down in Pasadena? As far as the the long term treatment for this, mm -hmm. uh, I mean, a lot of times in the states, it, as as it is in our capitalistic society, it's uh, it's a lot better if you have money. So there are certainly uh, there are programs, and I worked I used to work at a psychiatric a private psychiatric hospital where there are people who were there for some who were there for the the holds, which which here a, a, a if someone is suicidal and, and someone can put them on a hold, a medical doctor, psychologist can put them on a hold for 72 hours. Um, so they're there against their will involuntarily uh, and really can't leave. They'll be on a locked unit for a period of time. If that's what they deem they need to do in order to, to protect them, to, to keep them from taking their life. Uh, and that can even be extended another 72 hours and then going to a, a judge, you could get them there for another 14 days or 30 days. So these, these sort of periods of time that people can be kept against their will. But there are also treatment facilities for people who want to, to, to get that treatment. But again, it takes either great insurance or a lot of private funding for that. Um, and there are some facilities out there. And we see these facilities uh, every time we go to the symposium, uh, like Austin Riggs and a few of these other places where people can go for long-term treatment um and uh it's you know quite expensive but uh they're getting a lot of one-on-one -on -one care and group care and and uh getting some good treatment for that um on the other end of the so it's, that's kind of the, the upper end of the scale you know for people who have the money or the, the great insurance on the other end of the spectrum people who have no money and yet are um pretty severely mentally ill there's there are state-funded hospitals that people kind of go and are committed to that means like the, the their award of the court like the state kind of says we'll take care of you um and those don't have a great reputation mm -hmm. so it's uh for everyone kind of in the middle of that bell curve it's uh intensive outpatient programs um and uh, a lot of these dbt groups that you were talking about and psychotherapy um that people can engage in if they can find them near them nearby and uh and help uh get the help they need you know yeah so up here we um <clears throat> we do have private treatment but it's only for addictions mm. so there's private addiction centers but nothing for private mental health is there no uh, like eating disorder oh i guess so yeah yeah. Like yeah yeah there are a few eating disorder ones residential programs and it's yeah. hard to yeah, very few intensive day programs. Yeah, I think we have an ayahuasca treatment center somewhere in the the like 
Gulf Islands somewhere. <laughs> do we know? I do. I think so. Yeah. yeah also like very expensive. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's a whole other uh, topic there. For there's there's your there's casting. your next ambush. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Here we go. Here we go. Well, guys, have we? I've learned a lot already. David, you've been uh, very helpful. Um, I hope it's uh, not too much of a downer. Yeah, I mean, it, but I hope I hope you know I I can talk about this with a smile on my face, and I and I hope that's kind of the spirit that, that people can listen to it too. Is that you know be able to you know you know just normalize the conversation a bit more. Mm. So important. Thank you Absolutely. for doing that. Yeah. Yes. Thank you for doing that. Thank you for talking about suicide with us. We'll say the word loud and clear. Um, and and I'll put this in the link, but I'll, I'll say it to, to folks out loud here too. If if you are someone who is struggling with suicidal thoughts, there are these nice free hotlines that are available. In the States, the number for that is 1-800-237-TALK. And in Canada, the number is, the number I just found, I just Googled, is 1-833-456-4566. And these are numbers that are available 24-7 um, to talk and to get some support if you're feeling alone, if you're, if you're struggling, uh, having some of these thoughts and feeling like you're not safe. These are people who can talk to you and uh, provide a personal connection and, and maybe point you towards some resources. So that's the whole the whole function of that. So, David, you were an ambush I wasn't expecting, and I'm really glad you came because I would not have had as much information as you shared with us tonight. Thank you. <laughs> My pleasure. Thanks so much, everyone. Yeah, Absolutely. thanks for coming, David. Yes. So I will wrap us up here and say thanks for listening, everybody. Like and subscribe on Apple, Google, Podbean, Audible, Spotify, Stitcher, or YouTube. Send your questions to info at mentalhealthbootcamp.com. Visit us on Facebook or Instagram. Tell a friend or two. Have a good night. Bye, everybody. Bye, everybody. Bye. 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 Bye.